Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, an architect and a director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. In each episode, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I am joined by the architect Clinton Cole, founder of C plus C. We discuss Welcome to the Jungle, a home for Clinton and his family in Sydney, Australia. Described by Clinton as a direct response to the climate emergency facing our planet, the project wears its principles on its sleeve. A whole wall facing the street is made from solar panels. Plants cascade out of every other window opening, suggesting an overgrown jungle inside. And the building is topped with its own vegetable garden. But this is no normal garden set on a flat roof. In this design, the metal soiled filled planters form the actual roof itself and the produce allows its occupants to be as self-sufficient as possible. In the interview, we discuss the double-skin facade that creates space for all of the wildlife and functions as a passive thermal layer for the building. We also talk about Clinton's mantra that a house is a machine for sustaining life, and I find out what it is like to live in such a unique home. If you'd like to find out more about C plus C and the project Welcome to the Jungle, you can find information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Clinton, and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. George, great to meet you, and uh, thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, well, we're going to be talking about your uh, project, Welcome to the Jungle, today. And um, and that's where I wanted to start, actually, with let's talk about the name of the project. Because um, when I was kind of doing a bit of research and, and looking on your website at projects, we've got uh, this one's uh, Welcome to the Jungle. So obviously, I'm guessing is maybe kind of linked to being named after the Guns N' Roses song. Um, but then I also noticed that then there's another project of yours called Iron Maiden House. So I've sort of picked up a theme there. And uh, just wanted to know whether you've got a steel frame house in the making and it's going to be called Metallica. <laughs> yeah, look, the names of houses, uh, sometimes we spend five minutes, sometimes we spend uh, a lot more time thinking up, thinking up the names. But I guess, you know, architecture is very, it's a very proper uh, industry and oh, I guess kind of bring, it, uh, bring it to, uh, making it more kind of, uh, relevant and accessible to, uh, I guess, the, the broader population is was the intent with those names. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I am a metal fan. Um, yeah. I did pre-prepare a few Metallica albums that uh, I thought tended to describe architects and what architects do in one way or another. So one of their right. albums, so the following albums, Ride the Lightning, uh, yeah. the, design, the design process itself, Master of Puppets, a description of some architects' egos, <laughs> uh, and justice for all, the industry's war cries as they progressively lose the decades-long arm wrestle with the construction industry, who continue to yeah. gobble up traditional services. <laughs> Garage Days, one of their first albums, perhaps summing up the first project of a startup practice. Jump in the Fire, convincing our clients to trust our design concepts. Kill Em All, uh, describing the authorities that assess our designs for approval. Or See that <laughs> Metallica super fan. Then there's albums I didn't even hadn't even heard of. <laughs> Definitely a fan, but uh, yes, not overly popular in most architectural scenes. Yes, but it also it well describes the the projects. As in, we've got this house where it looks like the sort of jungles growing out of the windows. Yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, it's a house in the city. It was. Um, 
it's uh, retained or, or rebuilt masonry facade, uh, and you know it's basically uh, creating creating a kind of living, breathing house um, uh, with, with a lot of vegetation in the middle of the city. And I think the the name is, is quite apt. Yeah. And so, um, just for the listeners, this is a home that's for you. It's and for your family. Correct. Um, so you are you were the client on this project. You're the architect, and you're also the builder, yes. um, which is very interesting and it's quite a sort of unique um, setup. And we'll we'll touch on on a few of those during the interview. Um, how did you find the house? What's the history of it? Uh, the house is actually uh, on the way from the train station I used to arrive at to walk to university for when I first started studying. Um, I always loved it. Uh, when I started uni, I could have bought it for about 30000 Australian dollars. Uh, but at that time, I could really not scrape enough money together to buy a pint, let alone buy a house. Uh, and it pretty much stayed that way for about the next 20 years, at which time I was lucky enough to buy it for about 30 times that price. Um, so it, it was, uh, someone had just bought it uh, and the, the sale fell through and we bought it immediately thereafter. But yeah, it's a, it's a house that uh, strangely many people who attended Sydney University where I went and um, passers-by recognise, uh, even though it's mm-hmm. quite a an ordinary um, kind of bald-faced terrace. And was it inhabited then when you bought it? No, it was but derelict. Basically, not been inhabited for about twenty years. Uh, yeah. And I mean, the thing that really I really loved about it is that I knew it would be uh, accessible and um, seen by uh, a lot of students who attended university. That was um, one of the um, kind of attractions. But probably the biggest attraction was the fact that it got um, eastern, northern, and western light being a corner lot. And yeah. I've always looked for kind of corner lots in properties. And. Uh it's interesting what you said about it's a visible site and seen by a lot of students. Um, why was that important to you? Look, when you you, know, you get to kind of your, your early to mid forties and you, you've been doing projects for other people for twenty years and you have the opportunity to do something yourself, I, you know, I, I really wanted to, the house to not just make have an impact on my kids and and obviously be uh, and serve all the purposes that a home does for a family. I wanted to have an impact on the industry and, and probably most importantly the broader public uh, who uh, perhaps will never use an architect um, to, to try and show that uh, I guess sustainability uh, is can be a, a symbiotic part of architecture, they're not kind of two separate things. Make it aspirational I guess is probably the, the best word uh, and instead of as the industry does. Um, and continues to do to separate architecture from sustainable architecture to, to merge the, t- the two and make them I guess uh, appealing to the kind of general public and to, to make the architecture industry you know start taking a good look at itself at what it does. Mm-hmm. So is that, that's kind of viewing the project almost like a, a manifesto or a kind of publicity aspect for a, for a positive cause is that is that the way you were viewing it when you even at the point you were buying the house the, right very the much beginning. very much so and, and the more the more we delved into it the, the more i got excited about things that you know a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the sustainability attributes to the project aren't uh, aren't overly efficient like the the solar panel facade it doesn't perform well at all but that wasn't the point of putting it uh, making it part of the side making it part of the architectural expression the point was to not hide it up on a roof and to, for, for people to not be aware of it um, so yeah there's 
there's a, a lot of parts. I mean, there's parts that just didn't work, like the wind generator. Um, it worked. It worked so well that um, no one in the neighbourhood could hear themselves talk because uh, <laughs> it was that loud. It sounded like a jumbo jet going off, so that got disconnected really quickly. Um, a lot of things did work, uh, like the... Um, the uh, edible fish pond, that works well. The underground rainwater works well. The plants are just to die for and that they're working uh, so well in terms of just kind of creating... The, the house doesn't have that much outlook, but it, it just creates this kind of sense of... Um, you're kind of at peace inside the house, uh, even though yeah. you're, you're right on the fringe of, uh, you know, of a pretty major, a major city. Yeah. I mean, you've touched on a few things there already that i definitely can't just sort of let go like just dropping in an edible fish ponds um that you've designed into the house for listeners they're things that we'll definitely sort of pick up on uh they'll want to ask you about in the interview but i'm very interested in i mean what you're saying there about your thoughts there were clearly some strong thoughts at the point of buying the house of what you already knew you wanted to do i'm guessing and as a client um did you have I'm interested to know if you had a, a, a brief in the sort of typical sense, like a, a normal client would. Did you already have a kind of strong idea of what you wanted to achieve for your family, but also for the, the sustainability aspect? Uh, initially, I thought we'd uh, actually have our office uh, and our house in the right. same building. And then I came to my senses, thank God. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, what I didn't do, and uh, this is going to sound a little bit embarrassing, what well, is embarrassing, I didn't check whether it was a contributing heritage item. Uh, it was in a conservation area. But the building was in such a state, and you know, given the experience I'd had, I thought there's no, there's no, there's no way that this building could uh, have any relevance with respect to heritage because there was nothing left uh, except for a dishevelled facade, and it was. So, <laughs> but before we found that out, we'd actually designed it in kind of a solid a solid timber facade and we were proposing to use CLT, cross-laminated timber, for the floor plates and walls, all very low embodied energy structure. Um, but at, uh, when we found out at, at the end of the day, we had to not only retain it um, because of structural issues with the facade, we had to demolish it and rebuild it. Uh, we had to document it for... Um, uh, you had to bring in an archaeological photographer to document it for uh, his heritage records. It was ridiculous. Mm. So this is a, a challenge right at the, at the beginning. You bought it and kind of found out then about the heritage aspect. Yes. Um, what do they so, say? A plumber's, uh, a plumber's plumbing <laughs> in their house always leaks something, something like that. It's probably, it's, it's probably reassuring for people to hear, isn't it? That, that you make mistakes as well. Um, so a challenge right from the beginning, and that did that affect the way you sort of viewed this house as a brief? Like, did that impact the decision for it to not be your studio, for example? Uh, no, that was just, I, I think, you know, I, I go through, a, like any architect, you have um, kind of out-of-the-box thought processes, and then you, you speak to people and you, you, you give it time to kind of um, incubate, and then, you know, as I said, you come to your senses that living above your office is uh, a pretty silly idea, at least in my view. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, even though the house is actually only about 100 metres down the road from my office, at least there's yep. some separation there. Yes. Uh, I think when we found out that the facade had to stay, um, 
we were already so far down the, the track that contesting it was kind of out of the question because you can contest whether it uh, should or should not have been uh, listed as a contributing heritage item. Uh, the heritage, first heritage architect that we uh, asked to be involved was actually a practice that I, I worked for about um, in the mid-90s and that the architect came out and said, I can't assist you with this project. And I said, why? She said, because I was the contracted heritage architect that listed it and I was wrong. Uh, so that did not help, help the situation. But oh, I guess yeah. in some ways the retention or the, the retention of the existing facade solved a lot of problems. It meant, uh, it, meant I, it took the statement away. It took the decision mm -hmm. or the, you know, that, that, that really difficult decision of what are you trying to say about, um, what are you trying to say to the public about uh, with the facade or with the design of the facade. It, basically just mm. kind of took it out of the equation and we retained it and um, all the new openings uh, were, were very crystal clear in terms of how they were represented with white powder coat steel. The original openings <coughs> with the windows removed were represented mm -hmm. with, uh, they were simply framed out with Cortan steel just to show what was old and what was new. Uh, and then the solar panels actually took up the other part of it. So in that mm -hmm. sense, yeah, taking the, the that kind of temptation to make a really old architectural statement uh, on a very prominent corner site. I was kind of happy that I didn't have to do that and that yeah. most of the magic happened behind the facade. Uh, on the other hand, uh, having to having to rebuild a, a pretty um, useless masonry facade, which uh, had no structural support other than um, the structure behind it, led to us having to, uh, instead of using CLT and timber construction, we had to use steel. Uh, and mm -hmm. that was uh, pretty disappointing because the the facade needed needed lateral lateral stability, uh, and uh, we had no alternative but to use um, a lot a lot of steel, uh, which we yeah. eventually offset. So that must have been a pretty frustrating aspect of it because you you've said um, before that you've said that this project is a direct response to the climate emergency facing our planet. Yet here, straight away, there's a practical aspect that's kind of affecting that, that's heritage, that's completely, in, in this respect, in this project, is completely contradictory to, mm. to what you were trying to achieve. What were your kind of views on that and the sort of value of, of heritage and preservation and, and work that then needs to go in to preserve that, in this case, a lot of steel? It's, it, it's I always find it, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a quandary. You've, you've got... Like I understand the intent of the heritage provisions, heritage guidelines, and, and, and assessing a project uh, that is either a contributing item or, uh, or a listed item or a part of a heritage conservation area. Uh, but the fact that it has more weight than the sustainability of the project, the embodied energy of the project is, I think it's really problematic. Uh, if you prioritise the sustainability aspect, then would uh, the question I ask myself is, would people take advantage of it? Uh, I'd say the answer to that would probably be yes. Um, so we're about to embark on a project where we're we're about to we're going about the submission to the local um, council in a, in a different way. We're not just going to tick the boxes on the application. We're going to describe what we're doing, why we're doing it in great detail. And like most councils around the world now, they have <coughs> sustainability strategies 2030, 2050, and we'll be honing in on what their goals are and describing how we're meeting those goals whilst also um, submitting the necessary information for the assessment and. <coughs> you know, 
the, the, what's the worst thing that could happen? They ignore that information and, and assess it as normal, but I think it's kind of, I think it's worth a roll of the dice. Yeah. So this sort of overview then of this project, because, you know, that's what we've started actually with this, this wall that's been rebuilt to preserve the, the heritage status of that facade. It's on, the, the building's on a corner plot and the wall wraps around like an L shape on, on that corner. The house is then effectively, am I right in thinking it's a new construction behind a preserved or a reconstructed wall? So it's like a sort of stage set, this wall, and then everything else is happening new behind it. Correct, yes. And the second and third floor are set back. Um, there's basically a glass, uh, almost fully glazed inner skin, um, fully operable glazed inner skin. Uh, the ground floor um, uh, the, the, the meets the, the facade. Uh, but the was quite an interesting, I guess, when, when it's your house and you, you're dealing with it, I'd, I'd never dealt with a property so, on, uh, that was so small, so it's 98 mm-hmm. square metres, the entire site, really? and yeah. the amount of times I was pulling a tape measure out, like I'm talking 100 times a day, trying to work out, uh, working to millimetres whether things were going to work, pushing, uh, I guess, comfort levels well beyond what, what, what I would... Um, push for a, a, a paying client and yeah it's the decision to lose 600 millimeters of two floors of the house to give it over to plants and um, and an edible fish pond that was a difficult one because there was we lost a huge portion of floor area but it was absolutely the right decision to make and I think probably the probably the most pivotal moment in the kind of internal planning was uh, like every architect, you know, you design everything, you build in everything. We, we, let's, let's not buy a couch, let's build the couch in. Let's, uh, let's, let's uh, have control over everything. And I was lucky enough to have crossed paths with a, a, an interiors, interior designer, Jay Sullivan, who worked with us on a previous project, who basically said, how much have you used? How much budget have you set aside for this built-in fireplace, this built-in furniture, this built-in uh, TV that was coming out of a joinery unit? And I said, I thought about this amount. And he said, How about we do it for half, and you have some flexibility, and we buy some furniture that's consistent with the sustainability strategy. So we're not going to buy new. We're going to buy mostly old. And uh, if you want to change it, you can change it. And that was a really pivotal moment, not just the, the project and the way I approach design, but really, in the, 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 sorry, the way I approach um, the house, but the way I now approach design is just to kind of, um, you know, bring in people who can make you see um, what you're doing uh, a little bit more objectively. Yeah. So it's resulted then in a house where you've created spaces that, I mean, it's incredibly bespoke, the way the doors and stairs and windows work and, and there's bench units with storage and things underneath. But it, in addition to that, you've also got then pieces of furniture that can move around like in a typical kind of mm. non-architect bespoke house. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And that's the, so the thing about the, the planting and the fish pond and this 60 centimetres of space that's behind this heritage masonry wall um now that's working sort of passive thermal for the for the building for somebody that doesn't understand what that is and how that might work can you maybe describe you know what's happening here and what the what the benefit is to the building yeah i mean in really simple terms uh leaves uh plants uh have leaves leaves transpire uh and when a warm breeze passes across 
uh, that, that plant, uh, the transpiration uh, can cool that breeze down. And similar to uh, a body of water, um, it's a little bit like evap evaporative cooling. Um, hot water passes a large body of water and it cools that cools the breeze down as it enters the or passes into the end of the house. And then I guess in, in addition to that and what works um, almost perfectly, and I'll talk to you about one of the biggest regrets on the project, uh, is the thermal mass on the ground floor, uh, which uh, is quite cool during the day. Uh, the combination of the transpiration, the evaporative cooling from the pond, and also the evaporative cooling from the, the, the damp soil as well, um, uh, it just works perfectly thermally and the, the, the temperature is constant all year round. But I didn't know it was, I didn't have the confidence, and there's no software that you can um, use to calculate it where, where your roof is basically a, a six, 60, 600 millimeter deep planter bed full of soil. I didn't know how the, the house would perform, and particularly the master bedroom, which is on the west facing, which gets to the kind of late afternoon, um, really belting sun. Uh, I, I doubted myself, and I ended up putting uh, two air conditioner units, one on the top floor, because I was worried about the uh, how much insulation the, the planter beds would provide, and the other in the bedroom. We've used them once. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's probably the, one of the biggest regrets on the project. and. and I am always discouraging clients from using air conditioning unless, of course, they're offsetting it with um, with uh, batteries and, and solar. Uh, yeah, but yeah, there's you, you can there's only so many things you can have confidence about at any one time, yeah. and 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 this is not a, this was never going to be a building where you could retrofit uh, a, yes. a, a solution. That would, uh, you, you couldn't retrofit a fix-it solution. So it's an incredibly bold and brave project, but you still have regrets over not being brave enough and not having the air conditioning units installed. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just my project. It was with, uh, yes. with, with my partner as well. And, you know, uh, she doesn't come from an architectural background. She worked in the, been working in the company for 10, 15 years. That was, you know, that, that was uh, sometimes really, um, uh, really, uh, really constructive, really positive, really good for us. And other times, like like any kind of relationship, sometimes it was really hard where, you know, I kind of uh, perhaps ignorantly and arrogantly walked into the project thinking, well, I'm the architect, I, I get to make all the decisions. Well, that's a pretty stupid thing to think. <laughs> you, you know, you're still dealing with um, uh, someone who is, is also a client. And, you know, there was some wins and so there were some, some losses and, and it was, there was compromises along the way. But look, for all intents and purposes, she did allow me to do uh, pretty much what I wanted to, to do, um, except for some of the minor details. So, yeah, much respect. Well, I'm interested in that. Then you said, how did, was there a moment where, do you think it was obvious, your partner, that you'd always talked about this, this kind of sort of aspect and that you'd want to be doing this on a home? Or was there a moment where you kind of pitched, right? think we should be doing this and just bear with me and I'll I'll talk you through it. Oh look George you you you, you would know yourself dealing with clients where you believe that you are one hundred percent right and you uh, get increasingly frustrated because they don't understand that you're right. Uh, and there was a few moments, not a lot, there's a few moments like that. And there was a situation yeah. where, you know, like mixer taps for the bathroom, um, you know, there were uh, where um, my partner went and bought her own mixer taps um, and I ended up buying my own mixer taps and we ended up with two sets. Um, but look, I, I've done that with clients before where 
uh, on occasion I've said to them, look, uh, I know you don't um, have faith that my decision is right, let me do it, and if you still think uh, you're right when it's done, I'll pay to undo it. I haven't, okay. I haven't lost. I haven't lost one of those bets yet. <laughs> <laughs> but here we talk. I mean, you're, you're talking about the sort of mixer taps and things like that that you could mm-hmm. argue, are sort of in the bigger picture, they're fairly sort of trivial items. But the big thing here, you know, of a green belt around the house that's got plants. So you've got the windows punctured into this masonry wall, then a green belt all wrapping around that, and then a second skin of the building inside. That's pretty kind of out there for an urban plot house. But then added to that, you've got planter... The roof is a series of planter beds as well with an urban garden on and things. You know, what was that like in terms of describing? Because it's not it's not something you can say, oh, we could have something like this and you could show a photo of someone else's house, is it? It definitely... It evolved and the project architect who was working on it, um, I think she ended up doing over 3,000 hours and uh, to the point where... Like when you you when you are your own client, uh, it's you kind of out you get out of control. <laughs> um, and it's like you know you, whatever you, whatever comes into your head, you've kind of got the opportunity to do it without fear or favour, without needing uh, approval most of the time. Um, this individual uh, project architect, Christina Cheng, she ended up quitting. She basically bur- we burnt her out, uh, and nine months later, uh, I ended up. <laughs> wooed her back to start working for us uh, which is lucky but yeah like that's a lot of hours to be documenting a house um, that's on 98 square metres but it is it's a very very complex house in terms of its assembly and there weren't many compromises at the end of the day it was pretty much a a free for all I guess because I've been you know I came into kind of home ownership very very late in life um uh, that I thought, yeah, this is an opportunity. This is a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity, and I didn't want to. What we do in our day to day profession is talk to clients about what compromises they need to make to balance kind of quality and cost and mm-hmm. scope. And, uh, but I, I, because I wasn't bound by those to any significant extent, yeah, it's it's kind of unleashing the beast in a way. Yeah. <laughs> So there's there's years of kind of pent up ideas on <laughs> yes, how to do a house, yes. and I mean you can tell because there's so much in this. We keep sort of touching on these things and mentioning them. I'm just imagining listeners being like, "What what's this fish pond? You keep mentioning the fish pond. What is it?" But um, the so we'll get to that one. So the this this passive sort of thermal double skin around the building is helping to cool the building in the sort of hot climate that you're going to be getting in in Sydney. Um, but also from a livability point of view, it's incredible. Like the spaces inside, you get to live in these living spaces where you've got, where you would normally just have wall and window onto a street. You've got, you've got garden. You've got spaces you can open internal windows and and have sort of plants. Uh, can you maybe talk about that aspect as well? Because it's not surely this is not just driven by the sort of energy performance. Mm. There's a. I mean, one of the. What. One of the difficulties with the, with the site that is so exposed, but um, like east, north, east of north and west aspect, uh, on a fairly not an arterial road, but um, not far from a number of arterial roads and kind of major um, public transport hubs near a major university, was how do we achieve privacy? And I, I've never, uh, I'd never done um, done a design where I moved the living spaces to the top floor and 
utilitarian and kind of bedroom spaces to, to ground and, and middle floors. So in fact, uh, I've always discouraged that with clients so they have a connection to, to connection to the ground, connection to the landscape. But this was an exception to that rule. So I was in um, I was in new territory right right from the start. Uh, yeah, and that you know, like every architect does, they're putting themselves in. Uh, the position of uh, a client sleeping in their bedroom, they're putting themselves in a, the position of the, the client's children, uh, how are they going to feel if um, people can see in. So, you know, you go through all those motions like every uh, every architect does and that, that decision to, to have that kind of protective layer where uh, you can, uh, the, the occupants can see uh, it, Quite readily through the plants to to passers-by, but from the street you, you can't see you can't see back yeah. in. So you've got that sense of connection, you've got that sense of openness to um, to the public realm, uh, but but you've got that and that really necessary level of privacy. Um, yeah. uh, my um, yeah, I, I always say to clients uh, that, that the way I and the way I design is I, I, I'll, I design your house and put myself in your house uh, and I see where I can run around bare naked and still feel feel comfortable. And that's a, yeah. that's a pretty, um, it's, it's a very kind of reliable way to test your design, I think. Uh, and that was certainly yeah. the case on, on this project. Yeah. And that's because it is quite, it is a sanctuary in many respects, isn't it? It's quite private. Some of the living spaces, you just look onto this green around, not the street beyond. Yes. And just to clarify, George, I don't run around naked in my house. Oh, that was my next question. <laughs> my next question is, why isn't that in the photo shoot? Um, <laughs> So then the this the fish pond. We have to talk about the fish pond. So you've got a fish pond. It's got perch in it, and you've described it as working as an aquaponic system. So it's doing something. It's providing food source for the house, um, but it's doing something else. Can you sort of tell me what tell me what's happening with the fish pond? Yeah. So I did a project um, instigated by the clients. Uh, we didn't bring it to the table. They they uh, were very um, kind of. Producing food on site and being regenerative and sustainable in every way, they brought a lot of things. Uh, they went over and above all the things we typically took to a pro project, and it, it got me really excited. And I was at a point, I think, about maybe perhaps five years ago, where our projects had gone from you know, you know good good renos, uh, you know, maybe the odd new new home, uh, to the point where they were getting so big, uh, where one project uh, we had. Uh, we were designing a uh, artificial golf driving range room for a client and it was at that point where I pretty much lost interest in what I was doing and, and fortunately um, these clients Jeff and Julie came along our Aquas Perma Solar Firma house and their dedication and commitment uh, to I guess um, producing food on site and simplicity um, cutting out all those bells and whistles in the projects we were getting really renewed my enthusiasm for, for architecture. And I really want, wanted to take that into my house and just kind of turn the volume up. Um, I was also, uh, you know, having been a, a dad with, um, with two young children, which we planned for, we ended up having three. Um, I wanted them to have more connection with 
uh, with food, where it comes from, not just the, the kind of cling-wrapped kind of um, products you get from a supermarket. I grew up in the country and I understood all those things, but these my kids are growing up in the city, and so that was, there was a deliberate effort to put that um, the, the fish pond directly outside, directly next to their bedroom, so they could feed the fish every night. Um, and in terms of the way the system works, the fish poo in the water, the water gets pumped up to the roof, uh, and that gets uh, uh, irrigated onto the, the fruit and vegetables. Uh, the uh, the the water um, uh, grows the bacteria, which creates a nitrogen-rich uh, bacteria, and the the fruit and veg um, uh, love it. Uh, so it mm -hmm. propagates the the fruit and veg uh, that then drains through the soil off the roof down into an underground rainwater tank that gets filtered and goes back into the fish pond. So it's a closed loop system. It sounds really complicated, but it's it's really really once, once you do it once or twice it's actually a really simple system yeah um the problem is uh the kids have grown so attached to the fish that they're, <laughs> they're never gonna be eaten. <laughs> each fish that you eat at night's got a name associated with it and a backstory yeah uh, so <laughs> you've connected them too much to their food source uh, I love that aspect, though. I love that, um, you know, this this strong sort of feeling of, again, you're sort of thinking of wider things on this project, of going back to, you know, thinking of it being a prominent spot that students could see the house. It's then thinking about the occupants, your own children, and connecting them with their food source is um, is such a refreshing thing to hear. And it's something that is kind of outlandish, I think, in this kind of this kind of current climate of the way we construct houses but has absolutely no reason um to be i want to ask then if like something like this is it as simple as anybody could install a fish pond in their house and and link some pumps and drains to to wherever their veg patches doesn't have to be on their roof or on a balcony and and this kind of closed loop system would work and if that's the case why don't more people do it i think i mean part of the reason that i did implement uh, you know, a, a plethora of uh, of ideas uh, with respect to regenerate uh, regeneration and sustainability was to show clients that it can be done. To show yep. them that it's not it's not just something you put out in the backyard and it's it's uh, detached from your house. That it's, it can be an integral part of your house. I never expected any client to take up everything. Of course, that that would be crazy. You know, we we went we did go OTT with on the number of systems we put in the house. Um, but can it be done? Like the, the purpose of doing the house was to, so. Someone might listen to your podcast, George, and then decide to put some to grow some herbs on their balcony. It's yeah. it's that simple. Um, it's it's about kind of making it making look. Most people, I, I think, the architecture's gone in a direction where, like Australia, has the biggest houses on average in the world. We've got to ask ourselves the question: Why do we have the biggest houses in the world? Is it architecture? and our industry are making people aspire to houses with six car garages, houses with dedicated rooms for high heels, houses with um, uh, home, home theatres, uh, second living rooms, guest rooms. Um, is the, the architectural industry actually uh, having such a, a, a negative impact on the broader public who will never use uh, an architect, but they see 
what uh, what the type of projects that, that we celebrate, the type of projects that we heap accolades upon, and do they want to aspire to that? I think there's some truth in that. Uh, and, and if there is, then what I have tried to do, it, it, I guess, is trying to change the way uh, or change what is aspirational to kind of your average punter out there. You know, only 5% of people use architects. Uh, what What is influencing the other 95%? I kind of think it's what we are doing and what we are celebrating, and you know, having having fifty a fifty square meters of a house um, in off form concrete with uh, famous artists, uh, famous sculptors' uh, artwork sitting in a corner with a a window with a shard of light beaming on the on onto the artwork and taking a photo of it, like that's not what we need uh, in this day, in this time, in the in the context of the climate crisis we're in. We don't need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's time for architecture to, to wise up because we're being left, we're going to be left well behind, I think. I think it's, yeah, it's pretty sad yeah. state of affairs in terms of the architecture industry at the moment. And what do you think, uh, totally obvious question, but what do you think are the pressing concerns that, or the, the, the priorities in terms of architecture and facing the climate crisis? Look, let's face it, uh, most, uh, the, the work we do is mostly based in, um, in major cities. Uh, that's where most projects for, uh, and I'm talking specifically about housing, single housing, uh, most of those projects are in or, or in the um, uh, outer rings of, of major cities. Uh, most of our clients are very successful. Uh, they have um, the financial freedom to spend a lot more money than most most people. Uh, but I think you know we've got a responsibility of architects as architects to to direct the type um, to attract the type of clients that we want by making decisions about the type of clients that we take on and the type of projects we do. And look, I've, you know, since I, since I took on that that project uh, with the aquaponic system, with those clients that instigated that system, they had wicking beds, and they had solar, they had evacuated glass tube, uh, hot water. It was it was beautiful, and they had chickens. Um, and you know the, the the story, and I said I was going to digress, George. I'm going to digress. Uh, the the story that they told me that that convinced me this is the right way to, uh, I guess, redirect my company, was when they said we are producing so much food that we are walking down the street, knocking on our neighbours' doors, and sharing produce with them. And these are people we've been living next door to, to for five years, and they've never met. Yeah. And now they know them, and it's building a sense of community. Uh, it's making them feel comfortable where they live, and there's something really special, really powerful about that. Yeah. And that's 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 architecture working in a really really positive light. I think, and that's what I wanted to yeah. do with with our house, and that's the type of client that I sought to attract. It wasn't just about showing students. It wasn't just about showing our industry. It was also about showing um, prospective clients. Uh, what we're about and trying to get those needles in a haystack to start coming to us and, um, you know, enjoying, waking up and enjoying going to work, basically. And how's that been for you then? So the, the community aspect for you, building this house and now living in this neighbourhood, what's that response been and has that worked for you as well in terms of getting to know people? Yeah, it, it, look, definitely. There's, 
like we, our office, which is just up the road, we'd been here for seven years and we really didn't know that many people in the street. As soon as we started building, uh, well, as soon as, you, as soon as you lodge your application for approval, of course, you, you find the people who are, you've upset, find out the people who yes. <laughs> you've upset. And, uh, but as you start to build, people love kind of having a chat as you're on site. And we met so many people. People uh, where, who would happen to be walking past her after going to a local restaurant and would say, I remember just living up the street, this is fantastic. And, and anyway, the, the connections that, that, uh, that, that, a, that a building can make to your community are infinite, um, that's, that, that's for sure. Uh, like we met a guy, um, I still know, um, John, he's like eight years old. He was born on this street in 1938. He remembers the building being built uh, when he was uh, in uh, seven or eight years old. Again, disproving that had any heritage relevance whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and he remembers, he told me the story about how it used to be a butcher's. It was a butcher's for 30 years and then it became derelict, which is quite ironic given I've been a, a vegetarian myself for about 31 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the retention of the existing facade really um, was a real positive uh, to community interaction at the end of the day because the, the building was prominent and had such familiarity with so many yes. people over decades and decades that uh, so many people just came up to me and said, I'm so glad you retained it, so glad it's still right. there. Um, so that, that familiarity uh, and the, that, that choice that I might have had, had that, had that mistake not occurred with that heritage architect of listing it, might have completely... Um, pushed the community away, might have yeah. uh, changed the entire relationship. So there was, there was some positives that came from um, yeah. what was a, some sort of human error. Okay, there's, I'd like to spend a bit of time now going through some of the, the features of this house, because you, you mentioned about how, you know, like with the herbs and, you know, if there's an impact and people might sort of do something on their house, there's loads here and it'd be nice to try and get through um, some of that stuff. If we could just start with the the connecting the children with their food source and how food is being produced in the house. It's not just um, the fish, there's, there's other aspects as well. Can you talk me through some of those? Yeah, so the kids, like the idea of raising kids in, in the city was really important because I came from a country area, as did my partner, uh, where we, you take for granted um, veggie gardens in the back backyard and dad goes off fishing with his mates and brings back 65 um, trout that you didn't really need and you can't eat um, like we went we went bloody ferreting god knows why uh, for rabbits that you can't really eat uh, so but yeah, it's all about kind of connecting to kind of um, you understand where food comes from put it that way but but growing up in the city i was really concerned that my kids thought that lettuce grew in a plastic bag at uh, the local supermarket Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big drive for decisions which were quite in their face, um, and, uh, particularly with respect to the, the, the fish pond. Um, the other, I guess, aspect to uh, the sustainability uh, attributes, uh, like we have a solar panel system, we have a battery system, uh, we have native bees where we can, can collect honey. Um, it takes about so a year. So this is a beehive that's on, on the roof, right? So you've, can't, you've got a garden that's on the roof haven't you that's made yeah. out of these planter troughs that is the actual roof right that is the roof yes um, tell me a bit about that because that's pretty unique so around the perimeter of those troughs, there's 18 hot dip galvanized steel troughs which act as the the roof they act as the the gutter 
They act as the planter beds uh, and also the uh, insulation to the, the living room below. So, um, so there's no, am I right in thinking there's nothing else there? When you're in that kitchen, you're looking at the underside, the underside of these metal planters and yeah. the soil is the insulation. Correct. Yes. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, one of the accidental benefits of the irrigation system, so the the water from the pond is pumped up to the, the roof to the, the natives and to the vegetable garden. And during really hot days, if you turn because you can everything can be controlled by an app. That's the other thing that we did. Um, whether yeah. it's whether it's necessary or not is is the point of debate. Uh, but you can turn the irrigation on whenever you want. Uh, the irrigation happened to come on on a super hot day and it cooled the space down because the water's running along the ceiling lining. So and that was yeah. completely unplanned. Um, but having, yeah, being able to go on, onto your roof um, with your kids supervised, of course, uh, and kind of pick rhubarb and grow tomatoes and do your compost yeah. and watch the native bees buzz around because they're stingless. Uh, it's it's a it's a really kind of bonding experience. Uh, it's, mm. uh, it's it's better than kind of monitoring them playing games on their devices. Put it that way. Yeah. So you're, <laughs> so you're making honey. You got fruit and veg. You got fish. Yeah. Uh, I've also read eggs. Where where are they coming from? No, that uh, that got canned. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I initially thought that chickens uh, uh, would be aware of the danger of heights. Uh, but uh, apparently chicken psychology doesn't work that way. <laughs> so uh, they're like lemmings. <laughs> so there was a significant risk of our, um, of our egg-laying chooks um, falling to their death off the edge of the building. So That would have been terrible PR for your, uh, your campaign. It would, yes. Um, and then what about water then? Because so, we talked a bit about it with the fish pond, but you're, and you've got this huge tank that is installed in the ground below the house, and you're yeah. sort of recycling and harvesting water. What's happening? Oh, water's an interesting one, and again, those uh, the clients of the Aquasperma Solar Firma uh, project, uh, they're actually in uh, kind of major developments in terms of sustainability calculations, and they were the first to show me that uh, more than 5,000 litres of rainwater storage, uh, 5,000 litres takes about seven years to pay off, uh, 10,000 litres takes about 70 years to pay off. So. Uh, that's not even factoring in the embodied energy in the moulded plastic uh, tank that you're putting in the ground. So we, we ended up having a 5,000 litre system. Our, our, uh, what do you mean, sorry, by 5,000 litres takes that long to pay off? Uh, 5,000, according to my client's data, it takes uh, around seven years for, for payback, if you like, in terms of reuse and capture. Uh, but if you go to 10,000, it takes about 70 years to pay off. But that's not factoring in the embodied energy of the tank, whether the tank's made of steel or it's a bladder or it's a cast-in-situ underground tank uh, or it's a, um, a plastic above ground or, as this was, a uh, cast plastic underground tank. There's so much plastic in that tank. And on right. balance, on balance, you might as well just get, get your water from the mains. I see it's the plastic. It's the plastic. It's the plastic, that's uh, right. Got you. And what happened yeah. with the project is, uh, and this, you know, this is going back a few years, we, we, we took on uh, uh, life cycle analysis software. First we used OneClick, and now we're mostly using a uh, software called eTool. We ran our project after it was finished, just after it was finished, through, um, through the OneClick software, and we discovered things that, are, even to this day, were uh, etched firmly 
in my memory, uh, products that we used that we thought were quite low in, in terms of um, stored carbon, uh, but some are, were some of the worst uh, that, uh, that worst products available. I won't name the products, but yep. put it this way, we're not going to use them again. And we are now, we've yep. now implemented that software on every project at the very early design stage. And your modeling, uh, your, mod, your, your Revit modeling, so we're using um, uh, building information modeling for all, all of our work. Your modeling has to be spot on for the reporting to be right. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that's kind of, kind of had a major impact on the decisions we make with respect to materials and, and embodied yep. energy. But the tank is, is storing rainwater that you're collecting from the planters on the roof. So the fish pond uh, pumps to the roof. Uh, the uh, the excess water then drains down to the underground rainwater tank through a first flush device. Then that is filtered and pumped back to the pond itself. The, the water for um, toilet flushing, for washing, for um, uh, from the the kitchen, etc. That's from mains water. We we didn't have right. we don't, didn't not we did not have the room to recycle water on site. Uh, we used the the mains um, town sewerage system. We don't have grey water or black water because again, we had enough complexity in the project and the site yeah. was so small that it was just really not um, not, not so really the, workable. So the recycling of water helps when it's if it's not raining and you need to be nourishing plants and uh, fruit and veg on the roof. The rainwater, obviously, if the if the water's not being irrigated from the pond, the rainwater also hits the planters and ends up in the underground tank, but it's got a maximum 5,000 litre capacity. And then it overflows, yeah, okay. And then in terms of recycling and, and reuse, so the, like the waste that's produced in the house generally, what's, what's happening there? So compost goes uh, up onto the roof into a compost and then uh, system and then into a worm farm. Um, that is something that kind of we've kind of used our kids as slave labour to do, which is fantastic. And, <laughs> and this is this is all food waste. So food, food waste, waste doesn't yes, leave yes. the building; it just gets food waste doesn't recycled. Leave the building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, things like that. I guess having uh, having being involved with kids with composting and worm farms and, and native bees, it's. It's, it's not about kind of, um, I guess, saving, it's not about saving money, it's not about saving the planet, uh, because it, it makes such a small impact in the context of mm -hmm. such a tiny house, but the real value that you get from having those things um, work with your home uh, is the connection you have to your family and also the, the, the constant reminder of your connection to the environment, which I think is something that uh, has probably been the, the most beneficial outcome of the, of the project. We, you know, instead of, you, you wake up, put it this way, you wake up one morning, you go, why have I got a shampoo bottle and a conditioner bottle? Is there a better way? And you go look for it and you find that there's shampoo yeah. and conditioner soaps that come in cardboard boxes. You, you look at your uh, your washing, um, the, the uh, detergent you're using for your washing machine and is there an, another option out there? And we've discovered soap berries, which are one of the most sustainable kind of washing products on the market. And it's it's the headspace that uh, I guess being surrounded by things that connect you to the environment that makes you constantly think about the environment. And I think that's a really valuable outcome. 
it's like one one action leads to thought about further actions that continues Absolutely. and continues generation um and in terms of one of the kind of key sort of structural things that you've done here is you've got the the stair is obviously fundamental to any building that's over this sort of many floors and um you've got a spiral stair that you've inserted behind the facade that wraps at the building and from what i understand it says triple height it's going over three floors yes that's performing a function sort of ventilation wise of the building as well so that's kind of intrinsic to the whole design um not only is it a beautiful space and journey through the building but can you just tell me a bit about that stair and how it functions um, from a sort of passive sense in terms of thermal and ventilation? Well, it, it kind of performs differently to what I anticipated. So the theory the theory was that we had thermal mass at the ground floor, mostly uh, with, with very few few kind of glazed windows. So that's very cool all year round. And that uh, air that passes through that, that cool thermal mass would then move up the, the the stack effect chimney, if you like, um, of the um, of the stair, and then be put, and then hot air from the top floor would be pushed out. The reality is that it doesn't perform like that. The the the, the way that we cool the house or keep the house cool in summer is by sealing up the top floor and allowing that cool air to kind of pervade the three levels. Uh, right. So completely in contrast to kind of, I guess, the, the, the typical theories we understand about the stack, stack effect. But, you know, it is a very unique building and um, you know, all buildings perform differently. There's there's no software to anticipate how a building is going to form, perform. But if you, I guess, if you're providing uh, enough kind of mechanisms where you can use the house as a machine um, through trial and error, you can work out uh, a way to yeah. make it perform better thermally. Yes, okay. And then the uh, the other sort of prominent part that we've talked about visually from the street, apart from the existing the, the masonry wall, is you've then got the photovoltaic um, facade that you mentioned right at the beginning actually doesn't really work that effectively. Um, but can you talk about what the intention maybe was there, and then why it's maybe not performing as effectively as, as you wanted it to? So we always knew it would not perform well in summer uh, because of the inclination or the angle of the sun. Um, with respect to the, the verticality of the solar panel. So that yep. was, was always going to run at kind of 20, 30%, but we thought it would, was going to perform really well in, really well in winter where we, when we needed it. Um, but what I didn't check was uh, that the trees across the road, which we have the benefit of in terms of kind of borrowed, a borrowed landscape, you know, the, the canopy of those trees is uh, one of our, um, one of our outlooks, but I didn't check that the trees across the road were evergreen or deciduous, and they are evergreen right. so they don't drop their leaves. So they, yep. <laughs> when the sun's really low in winter, uh, one of these main trees uh, overshadows the solar panels. Yeah. So certainly yeah, nowhere near as effective as, as we thought it would. We, we did we did approach it knowing that it was, was it wasn't going to be performing at a hundred percent. But yeah. I guess the, it, it was never installed as just a, a, a pure um, kind of return on investment um, system. Yeah. There's, there's so much learning then clearly that's happened on on this project. And it takes projects like this, I think, doesn't it, to, to be sort of test beds and to be sort of pioneers of trying kind of some out there kind of theories or, or attempts with you know, what you've been doing. What are there aspects here that you think if you were doing this again now for another client, maybe not particularly on specifically on this site, but what things have you learned that now you definitely wouldn't do again or you definitely would do more on other people's houses? Look, I've, I've 
doing what I do, like both the architecture and the construction, what I know with absolute certainty is you're always learning. You'll never, ever come close to knowing everything and you've got to always be, you've got to always be kind of on the front foot and actively involved and not rest on your laurels and not assume that something you knew yesterday is going to be appropriate to what, uh, to the advice you need to provide people tomorrow. Uh, I've got clients who are just, even after we've done our house, uh, I've got clients who are now pushing us even further into uh, natural pools. Well, what the hell is a natural pool? It's a pool where you don't need a filtration system. You have a biofilter, yeah. which is a reed bed. You can uh, put fish in your pool. You can have turtles in your pool. You can go fishing for fish in your pool. Uh, and that was, again, uh, a client who was drawn by what we had done and is now pushing us further into territory mm. that we haven't worked in before. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's like a lot of things that will, there's a limitation to how much we know. And I guess, you know, as I say to my guys, the most dangerous person uh, in our industry is the person who, who uh, says they know everything. Yeah. But what, okay, if you had to pick like something from this house that you think everybody should be doing this when they're designing a house, would there be anything that really stands out? I guess that there was prioritising prioritising the things that matter, not the things that seem like appealing at, 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 a, at a glance. And I don't know, it's, it's a difficult question to, to, to answer because we have actually squeezed so much into this tiny site. Yeah. We've got got three bedrooms we've got a uh, you know a room where the kids can play games we've got a craft room we've got an outdoor living space rooftop garden we've got a separate laundry we've got all yep. these things uh but you know i, I don't have a, a a double garage and a and a, and a workshop to build stuff i don't have a pottery room i don't have a music room all that look i would love to have those things but yeah, they they're not the highest. They were never the highest priority at the end of the day. And when you go through the process, when you're on such a tight, constrained site, you've got to make you've got to make compromises, and and that really pushes you to make the compromises that are, I guess are in the best interests of your family, not just kind of your selfish self. Yeah. yeah. And what's it What's it like to live in the house? Can it evoke a sort of feeling of what it feels like to live in this? Because it That's looks really... beautiful for. Yeah, can. You know, it looks like a sanctuary. It looks peaceful. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question. Like when when I walk into a project uh, after it's kind of just been built and finished, you know, like most architects would, would say, I've already seen it. I saw it a year ago um, before it was finished. And the house feels like that, but it also is, it's got that, uh, it's got a level of comfort, a uh, level of, of Effortless, even uh, effortlessness. Even though that you have to kind of walk three floors to get from the entry to the top floor, it doesn't feel. Uh, it, it feels like it's meant. It was. It's meant to be what it is. Um, uh, it's calm. It's peaceful. Um, people feel. People who visit feel comfortable. Um, they feel initially overwhelmed because the amount of detail is <laughs> um, yeah, pretty ridiculous. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, they feel comfortable, and that's you know 
I think that's because it's like any good design. It's it's not about what it looked like, looks like, or how it photographs in a magazine. It's about the sun. It's about ventilation. It's about connection to landscape, connection to the environment. If you get those things, everything. If you get those things right, everything else doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. It's our relationship with the environment as human beings that uh, is the most important thing we as architects need to deliver uh, on each and every project. Yeah. And that is a recurring theme for other people I've sort of spoken to on the podcast, particularly projects with a real sort of environmental agenda on them. Is It's about the fundamentals, isn't it, of, of light and shade and wind and air and sun. Um, and what about your children? What's you know, what do you think they would say if I was speaking to them about, you know, what they love about this house? Uh, I think they would, um, if you ask them what you like, they would tell you what they don't like. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's why I love kids. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, what wouldn't they're, they like? They're the, they're the most, they're most anti-architect um, you know, <laughs> humans on the planet. Because, you know, architects, you ask, you ask an architect in public what they think about uh, architecture, uh, you know, everyone says nice things, uh, but kids are brutal. No. Go on, I, want, I want to hear some of the brutal. What have they said? What have they said? Uh, oh, look, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But... No, no, I think they've been pretty. I think they've been pretty happy about it. But you know, kids yeah. are kids. Are kids that who knows? God knows what they're thinking. I can't remember. But I was thinking back at their age, but yeah, they're mostly obsessed yeah. with talking to their friends on the on the, on the phone or uh, playing their devices or um, playing games or hitting each other and crying or. <laughs> that friend, that friends that come around must be impressed that they can open their bedroom window and, and feed the fish they are they yeah, kind of little yeah. garden there I don't, I don't know like um like i grew up in like a project home so i think i think kids are the, the the beauty of being a kid is you, you just take things for granted and well that's probably not the best thing an adult can do it's a it's a beautiful thing that you want kids to have, you know what I mean? Yeah, yes. Um, right, Clinton, I'm going to ask you now the three questions that I ask right. all my guests at the end of an episode. The first one, you may have actually already answered that um, but uh, in the interview, but what is the one thing that really annoys you in, in your home? Oh, that's a very simple question to answer myself. Yourself? Okay, myself. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> what is it about yourself in your home that annoys you? I, oh, look, one of my, um, look, I wouldn't call it a problem, but I'm a cleanaholic, uh, where I have been known to whisk away people's meals before they've finished to uh, to wash their plates. So that's one of my that's one of my traits. So yeah, I annoy myself because I I don't even know I'm doing it. <laughs> but yeah, is it a good house to have that habit of wanting to clean all the time? Uh yeah, it's re- it's really like. I run my around with a Dyson. Um, and it takes me about ten minutes to get from the top floor to the bottom floor. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Go Dyson, English invention. <laughs> <laughs> and then, if you could describe one house that you've visited that has really inspired you, what would you choose? I haven't visited it, but what set me on the path to where I am now is, without a doubt, the Stock Orchard House by Jeremy Till and Sarah Wigglesworth. Uh, was done, I think, 20, maybe 20 plus years ago. Have you seen yeah. it yourself? I, I haven't visited it, but I do have um, Sarah Wigglesworth is coming onto the podcast in a few weeks' time wow. um, to talk about one of her more recent um, projects. But I, I know the house very well. It was mm. 
It was the first, I think it was the first ever Grand Designs uh, project, wasn't it? I'm not sure. I just remember seeing photographs of it and it was so kind of unrefined and experimental and brave, like the, just just a, such a courageous project that I guess my house speaks a lot about the things um, that they did in that house. Like they, they focused on productive garden, they focused on the stack effect, they focused on natural ventilation. In fact, Jeremy and Sarah actually popped in about three months before uh, completion on, on my house. So was, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish they'd seen it um, complete because, as you know, construction sites are pretty um, uninspiring uh, places before things are all wrapped up. But yeah, yeah they were nice enough to pop in and say good yeah, oh, I can see the connection. I can see the the influence as well. Um, quite a legacy, I think, that project left, and yeah, hopefully the absolutely. same for yours. Um, and then, if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? It's a tough question. I think the very thought of having to deal with a conventional architect frightens me to such an extent that I probably couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you'd probably be the no, builder on it as well. That's no criticism of conventional architects, but when, like, you know, of the half a dozen um, architects who also build in Australia at least, uh, there's a level of understanding about what we do that is it's, it's, quite, it's, it's similar, but it's, it's very different at the same time to uh, an architect who doesn't build. So, you know, someone like Drew Heath uh, or James Russell, uh, probably the, the architects that I'd get to des- design my house simply because of it, I can talk their language. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, preferably no one. <laughs> be happy to yeah, myself. okay. <laughs> Um, well, Clinton, thank you very much for giving your time to talk about Welcome to the Jungle. Um, congratulations on on the project. It seems to be gaining a, a lot of press and attention, which hopefully is, is part of the intention, so you can be talking about it more. But but thank you also for being... It, it's really refreshing to hear your honesty about what what isn't quite working as to plan on the project, as well as what works really well, because I think those discussions are needed for for inspiring architects like me and other people that might be listening that might want to be doing a house like this or learning from it. So thank you for that. Well, thanks, George. And as as, uh, as I did some background on research on you, I do know that you did build on your first first project with your we did, um, yes. partner. So um, big ups for that, mate. That's um, very, very impressive. And look, I also want to thank you for, I know this is, uh, takes, takes time out of your day, takes time out of your week, uh, but it's, it's important. I think um, I, I really value what, what you're doing and I'm sure the, the broader architectural community and the public really value it as well. So um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for doing this and thank you for, me thank you. for inviting me on. Thanks, Clinton. No thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about C plus C and the project Welcome to the Jungle, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all of my guests. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then please leave a review to help other people find the podcast. I have had other plant-themed houses on the podcast, including one of the very first episodes, episode three, where I talked to the architect John Elway about his home, Terrarium House another inspiring example of how to bring nature into the home. If you'd like to listen to the episode, you can play it via the episodes link on anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.